This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for January 28th, 2021, the short squeeze edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I am in Washington, D.C., where I'm joined. Oh, it's not joined by anybody anywhere. What am I talking about? I'm joined by my cat. I'm joined by one of my children. That's not so uh, bad. A cat, But a I'm child. just going to be like, I'm joined by you guys. I'm definitely not joined by you guys. We would love joined, to be joined by you, to join I'm you. Z- joined in a, in a Zoom sense by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And also in a Zoom sense, by John Dickerson of CBS 60 Minutes from Manhattan, I think. Hello, John. Yeah, I'm from Manhattan at this juncture. Oh, yes, you're in that, you're in the, my old room there, it looks like. Yeah, 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 the David <laughs> Plotz room, which is being kept at the ready for your next arrival when we get through this plague. I look forward to it. Today... We're talking about the crisis in the Senate, in the world's greatest deliberative body. I'm going to say that phrase over and over again today. (laughs) Can the world's greatest deliberative body, that's all said dripping with irony, if you couldn't tell, uh, accomplish anything? Then, the deplatforming of Donald Trump and some of his supporters. Is there a better way to reduce lies and hateful speech? Should private companies be responsible for that kind of policing? Then the curious case of GameStop, Felix Salmon of Axios and the Slate Money podcast will join us to explain one of the weirdest finance stories of this year or any year. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. The Senate is poised in an indelicate balance. It is a 50-50 Senate. And yet no one is quite sure what it's going to do, whether it can do anything, how it will accomplish what it's going to do. There are several members of the Senate, notably Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, who promoted a mob to attack the Capitol to overturn the election. They seem to not be bearing any responsibility for that. There's an impeachment trial that is scheduled that is also not going to go anywhere because of Republican intransigence. Meanwhile, Democrats who control the Senate in some sense because of the vote of Vice President Kamala Harris wish to push through huge bills, both temporary relief bills and larger structural reforms, both at a budgetary level and to things like voting and the number of states we have. And yet they don't necessarily have an effective majority to do that. There are a handful of moderates, a handful of centrists, I would say, sent people who are not uh, on the extreme of either party in the middle, and, and they exist in one space. Uh, there's a whole bunch of Republicans who refuse to distance themselves from President Trump, former President Trump, who continues to poison the political landscape. It's a really complicated situation. And then there's the question of the filibuster and reconciliation. John, so in this complicated state, I want to focus on a small question. How does a relief bill get passed for the Senate? It feels to me like there are three different ways it could get passed. as a bipartisan bill, as a Democratic bill shoved through using reconciliation, or a full abandonment of filibuster using a majoritarian principle that and getting rid of the filibuster as a, as a thing? 
I think that's right. I would split the second option into two, which is a bill just supported by the Democrats that's the big full or something close to the big full Biden plan, and then a bill pushed through by Democrats using reconciliation that's pared down. The difference between those two may be determined by a choice of the president and Republicans, or maybe determined by the parliamentarian who determines what can pass through reconciliation and what can't. And, and now, John, inter- you could explain the bird rule. Right. You can, <laughs> um, Why not? You can, um, the bird rule, uh, broadly speaking, sets the rules for part of reconciliation that require spending to be, um, to meet certain criteria where they have to be offsets for new spending. And No wonder um, I can't remember it. It's like really complicated. It's not just like, okay, you have to have spending as what you're doing through reconciliation. Also, I think there are the rules for reconciliation that are distinct from the bird rule. And so, um, what the reason this gets interesting is that some things like a change in the minimum wage or or a federal minimum wage of fifteen dollars, some people argue would not be allowed through reconciliation. Um, Bernie Sanders said it it will it can be done, and it just requires some you know artful um, lawmaking. But um, the big question, I think, number three, David, getting rid of the filibuster is not going to happen because. Um, at least two Democratic senators, Senator of Arizona and Manchin of West Virginia, have said they won't do it. So that's not going to happen. Um, I, 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 sorry, I just I'm sorry, John, to interrupt you, but I just need to get indignant. I mean, it's absurd. This is a this is a body that's job is to consider and pass legislation, and we're talking about something called the Bird Rule. Bird is Robert Bird, who is a Democratic senator from West Virginia who died probably 15 years ago at least. Uh, you know, was a powerful force in democratic politics for many years. But why are we yoked? Why do we exist yoked to some set of bizarre, you know, arcane rules that this body, you know, period passes at some point back in history to allow itself to sneak through one particular bill that needs to sneak, but then it it sort of, you know, carries the weight, the heavy weight of tradition. This is Byzantine empire shit here. This is the stuff where where you you've 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 gotten so calcified and so locked in that you can't do anything. You can, no one you you John Dickerson, an incredibly smart, deeply knowledgeable, you know, person who has studied American politics and American history and the American legislative process, like are trying to talk about the bird rule. You're not even sure what it is. It's just something that it is that's a yoke around the neck of the Senate. It's absurd. I don't well, know that. Well, I don't know that getting rid of the filibuster is like a thing to do, but it's like it's a ridiculous. The way this body works is ridiculous. It's well, that may be so, but when you have institutions and they decide for one reason or another to constrain themselves after particularly four years of presidency, I'm all for institutions constraining themselves. But like, let's let's like have constraints that sort of bear some relationship to the job that the institution needs to do. But it's David, a, you're usually all weird. about like politics and deal making and they have to work this out. And this is their kind of leftover constraint that they continue to operate under because they haven't figured out, you know, either as a matter of inertia or politics, how to move off it. But the point to me about the number two option and it's sort of 
1A and 1B guises that John laid out is that it's totally possible, right? Like, the Democrats can just get rid of the bird rule. They can decide that, you know, for this one time only or in some way that's not entirely getting rid of the filibuster, they are going to pass whatever they want through reconciliation. And it's really up to cinema and mansion what flies, right? Like, these rules, the majority has control over the rules, doesn't it, John? Right. Yes. And, um, well, it, yes, but roughly speaking. Um, but the point of the bird rule, by the way, well, there are six tests or seven tests, I can't remember, that for what's extraneous. Does it float? The larger, then it's a witch. The larger point of the bird rule is legislating should be done through committees and it should be done through a process. And don't try and shove things that don't have budgetary impacts through in reconciliation, which should be used narrowly. So the broader goal of the bird rule seems one, though it might be misinterpreted or misapplied or poorly used, the broader goal of the bird rule is do things the right way where the most people can, um, where the people who represent the largest number can have input in these uh, pieces of legislation. Don't try to take them in through a back door. So that general principle is not one that's insane. Well, first of all, it is kind of insane when you explain it that way. There's six or seven principles in order to fit things in this certain category of bill that we've decided should be able to pass by the majority, but other kinds of bills we should not be allowed to be passed by the majority. They must be passed through the 60-vote principle, which didn't really even exist until a generation ago and wasn't used in the way it was Well, those are two used. separate things. I mean, it's, it is a, it's, a, it's a body that is, that is, that is kind of locked in it's like it has some kind of disease where everything is 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 tied together in this way it can no longer move it's those people there's what's that disease where your bones keep growing and you lose the ability to move like that that's what the senate has and to and to i look i definitely believe in institutionalism i believe in politics i think you know doing something where you get 55 votes 57 votes great but this body is so screwed up right now that, well, that it can't, the, the, the idea that, yes, you, okay, you can pass this one reconciliation bill, but you can't, they won't even be able to, like, consider a $15 minimum wage, something the overwhelming majority of Americans support, won't even be able to consider, you know, statehood for Puerto Rico or D.C. or some of the voting rights reforms Emily talks about, even though they have vast majority support, because of the, the, the kind of blocking power that exists in the body. But, so that seems problematic. But I think... Your argument is more against the filibuster than the bird rule. You could argue that it's because of the bird rule that there might be a change in the filibuster. Well, I think David would say get rid of the filibuster, but then I sort of retreated to, okay, well, that's not possible right now. So, like, what can we do to drive a truck through it, basically? Which seems like right, right. But I think the focus of ire should be at the filibuster, not the bird rule. Um, So the focus of ire should be at be at a at a parties that are unable to work together, notably a Republican party that simply refuses to act as a legislative partner 99% of the time. Like well, the that, thing is, because, like, it, so is, the because it is decided to make a, you know, a death pact with, with a former president. Well, right. But the Republicans don't, if they don't support what's in the bill, they don't have to vote for it. I mean, that's their choice. The question is whether the institution and the Democrats who don't want to change the rules away from the supermajority like, are they going to continue along that path? I mean, I I feel like Jamel, among other people, has put this well. Are you 
it's a choice between a party that doesn't want to do anything, and and that is to the Republicans' advantage since they're not in control, versus a party that has promised a lot but is wearing handcuffs at the moment and is only going to be able to do some of it. You know, I actually think that some of what the Democrats are proposing has a pretty good shot of getting through. And if the Republicans want to shoot down the $15 minimum wage, maybe there'll be political repercussions for that. I think, well, I guess where I would retreat is to, um, we're operating in in an environment here that makes all of the traditional ways of operating in the Senate really up for new assessment and up for grabs. You have a number of senators who supported or uh, either actively supported the president's big lie or did nothing to speak out against it. There's basically no more dangerous thing that was bouncing around. And if they couldn't unblock themselves from partisanship to speak out against the president until after there was an insurrection, and even then some of them didn't, you're no longer operating in a body where the norms and traditions and the ideas of bipartisanship are accessible. Because traditionally what you would say is, Some of these rules should stay in place so that you force people back into negotiation and into compromise. And the reason there's a benefit in that is that the losing team feels like they had a say. And if they feel like they had a say, they live to fight another day within the body and they don't choose to take their fight outside of the body. Or you also, it just is a more orderly way of doing things. But we have a situation in which the idea of bipartisanship couldn't even break through when the big lie came around. So why is it going to break through any of these other pieces of legislation? I mean, some like infrastructure, maybe you could get people to operate in their own self-interest for their states and get 60 votes. But the moment we're at is one in which you can't rely on the now let us all reason together because in the moment when people should have been reasonable, they weren't. That's the great moment we're in right now. I think, Emily, the idea that people would pay a price if, say, they voted against the minimum wage, that's possible. But the whole reason we're in this sticky moment is that so many states have become, and so many elections are based on, uh, you know, basically just what your base wants, that you might not have that kind of penalty you used to pay in the old days where you had a whole bunch of voters in the middle who sloshed around. But having said that, we also saw the changes we saw in in Georgia. And so where you had a, a traditionally red state, elect two Democratic senators. So maybe those kind of penalties and prices are possible. I don't know then, having gone through that, whatever I just said, is what what really that points to in terms of how we get out of this moment we're in. I think one of the things that's so uh, peculiar about this moment to me is it was clear that Mitch McConnell wanted to cause a break from Trump, a true rupture from Trump. And there was a moment, and that moment is clearly passed, where had the party as a whole in the Senate acted, they could have effectively purged him. They could have decided. And McConnell definitely seemed to want to do it. He was angry about what literally happened, and I think he felt the baleful effect that Trump was going to have, the way that Trump was going to, was going to poison the, the Republican Party for the next few years and dominate it. And so he wanted him purged. And... McConnell tried to act, and it has failed. The party has has cir- circled back around Trump ever more so. And what do you think, Emily, that the implications of that are? That you have the, you know, 30% of Republicans don't love Trump, but the vast majority do. 
that 30% doesn't have any power, apparently, to influence what goes on. Right. I mean, impeachment is super unpopular among Republicans. And once that poll started to come out, that seemed like that was going to be the answer, that it would take some extraordinary shift among the base and the Republican Party to shift senators, and it's not there. Fox and OAN and whatever else, Newsmax, are like feeding into the feeling of aggrievement about impeachment. So, I mean, I think it's going to be... It's really important for there to be a fair trial in which the senators weigh the evidence, like the Senate at this point has to go through that exercise, though I understand why Senator Tim Kaine suggested a bipartisan censure instead, because this is going to suck up time and energy at a moment when the country really can't afford to expend a lot of that. But I don't think that that idea is going to go anywhere. And so we are going to have the public airing of the president's role in uh, the Capitol assault. I hope we find out some more information about um, what led up to the assault in the planning. But also, I'm still stuck on the delay in response. We got a little more from the acting head of the Capitol Police this week, but we have never heard publicly from the actual decision makers that day. And I'm still curious and worried about that. And then obviously there are also this other information that's come out, I think, since we taped our show last week about the Justice Department and the way in which Trump was trying to manipulate federal law enforcement to feed into and promote his lies about the Georgia election. So I hope they introduce some evidence about that, though I don't think it's clear whether that's the case or not. Can I say one more thing about reconciliation? You know, the one thing that's... um, an unfortunate byproduct of having to work through. So there's the tactical question of whether you go fast or go big uh, that that Democrats have to decide about. But then there's also it would be nice if there were a forum to adjudicate some of the questions, particularly for me, the Republican opposition to a relief bill, which is in found, which is founded in some part on this idea that you can't spend all this money because of its um, effect on the budget deficit. Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Fed, basically shot that down uh, on Wednesday um, and said the most dangerous thing is if you don't have vaccinations, which this money would go to, and if you don't have money in the economy to the people who are hurting, that there's danger there too. And that the danger of inflation is actually, he actually said we wouldn't, we could use a little inflation. And obviously there's the political lack of good faith among many of the people who are making the the budget deficit argument because they didn't care very much when Donald Trump didn't care about budget deficits. And so that's a kind of a, a phony thing. Or if people want to try and make a real case for it, there should be this there should be a forum for this debate to happen. And if we get into a reconciliation, no reconciliation conversation, as important as it is, it tends to basically be an important structural question or tactical question, but that it also but kind of takes us away from the really interesting substantive issues that should be debated because they're going to be debated now and basically for the rest of Biden's term. This question of whether money is is uh, should be spent now for the purposes of investment versus you know any negative budgetary effects. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on this podcast and other Slate podcasts. You support the excellent journalism that Slate does. If you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can become a member today. Our Slate Plus topic today is going to be about organization. John Dickerson 
is a man of many talents. One of his greatest talents is he is exceptional, exceptionally thoughtful about organization. I don't even know if he's actually organized. He just thinks a lot about That's organization. That's a great distinction. Uh, and <laughs> he's going to walk us through his process. And if Emily and I have processes, I'm not sure I, I do. We will talk about those. This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No Emily, what is deplatforming and is it good or bad? Deplatforming is taking a person off a social media platform or taking down an entire social media platform, depending on who is doing it. So the two big examples since January 6th have been uh, Twitter in Twitter permanently suspending President Trump and Facebook indefinitely suspending him, um, pending now a review by Facebook's new oversight board, which will be an interesting thing to watch. And then the other important move was that Amazon Web Services de-hosted Parler, which was this new, more right-wing platform that had started up. And so that's like... You know, Parler's like, I don't like your newspaper, I'm starting a new newspaper, and then the ink manufacturer says, I'm not selling you ink anymore. It's like at a different level uh, in the stack, as people describe, like, all the services that go into being up online. Whether it's good or bad, um, I mean, I think in in the short term, it appears both the Trump deplatforming and probably Parler, and also, like, the taking down of tens of thousands of accounts associated with QAnon, it's uh, correlating right now with a decrease in disinformation online generally, which seems like, okay, well, we all need some relief from that given the damage that, you know, the lying has done before and since the election. The larger question, though, about the precedent we're setting here, all the power that this handful of oligarch tech companies have in determining what kind of speech is in what is effectively a public square those are like really hard questions to answer. And, 
you know, I ended up in this piece that I wrote from the Times saying basically that, like, we don't want the government to make these decisions. We don't really want the tech companies to do it, but we don't want no one to do it. And so we're sort of stuck right now without a clear solution. So what's wrong with the government doing it? What's wrong with the tech companies doing it? And who could do it if neither of them is the appropriate group to do it? Well, you know, traditionally with free speech you always worry about the government doing anything that approaches censorship, right? Like, that's a deeply held principle of the First Amendment. We didn't always interpret the First Amendment that way in this country, really. It's, like, since the 1960s that we all fully got on board for that. But, like, we're fully on board. I mean, I don't think... I don't hear any proposals for, like, a federal department of content moderation that would make direct decisions about what you can post on any social media platform. That's really antithetical to the First Amendment tradition. And I would argue to European free speech traditions as well, which are somewhat different than ours. The problem with the tech companies doing it is that it can seem pretty arbitrary. They don't have to explain. They don't have to be consistent. And the chances that they're going to stick with the kinds of decisions they're making now, which seem to be leading to a healthier news environment online, are like minuscule because the algorithms by which they operate are profit-driven. And the kind of hot, insightful content that they generally promote keeps people engaged. Lies tend to spread faster than the truth online. And presumably we're going to go back to more of that default place. Having nobody do it means that you have like a ton of hate speech and disinformation online, and that doesn't seem so great either. One question I have is, you know, whether there are sort of middle ground regulatory solutions here. I think the Europeans are going to come up with them faster than the United States. And what's interesting to me about writing in this space is how, I mean, part of it's like they are kind of technical and so, you know, it's not like you can capture them in one phrase, but I think also there's a lot of resistance to just the idea that the government has any kind of regulatory authority here. And I, I get why for all of the like government censorship reasons that we I was talking about, but I think in the end it blocks the kind of more like nimble thinking that we really need right now. What are the Europeans likely to do, Emily, that, are, that, that makes sense? Well, so one obvious thing is like, let's just, you could start with this. Let's have the companies come up with a code of conduct and some standards and then some way to hold them to those standards. Like right now, we don't have any idea what they're doing in their black box. Like they control whether independent researchers even have access to the data that would allow us to know whether they're doing what they said they were doing. So, like, that's pretty hands-off. Or you could have the government come in and help set some standards. Like, maybe the algorithms should not be entirely in the hands of the companies. One idea that's popular in Europe right now, or popular is the wrong word, but being bandied about is users choosing algorithms, like the platforms would have to offer different options. I'm skeptical about that. It's the way the privacy law operates in Europe. And if you're anything like me when you're in Europe and you get those, like, little notices that are like, will you accept these cookies? If you want to read it, you just click OK. And like, I, I don't trust myself to be like informed and smart enough to pick the right algorithm. But I think the idea that there maybe we should set some limits on um, how these algorithms operate, like I that seems like maybe a good idea to me. I mean, again, it involves the government in some way in speech regulation. Um, so you have to think about who you're handing that tool to. Would you rather basically want Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey always making these decisions 
behind closed doors for whatever <laughs> political reasons? Or do you, would you rather have some government agency that, that the Europeans set up or that, you know, states or the federal government sets up that has some oversight rule here? The way we used to do with broadcast TV and radio between like the 20s and the 80s. Right. There's, so the, I like the idea that you tell the companies you are going to set up a rule set of rules which are going to be transparent about what those rules are and then we're going to hold you to account. I mean, I think the thing that is so troublesome, one, is Facebook has a, in particular, has a long history of saying it's doing one thing and then just lying about it and going and doing something else. I mean, they had the, there's this whole thing about how they were not directing people towards certain kinds of groups. They said that very publicly and turns out it seems like they were directing people towards those groups even as they weren't. So that's one big problem. The other problem is that the fundamental business model of Facebook is so based on making people riled up. It's to keep everyone at a simmer to allow, you need to allow enough hateful content to keep people engaged. So that's another issue. A third issue is that you can do these things in the US or in Europe. Facebook operates all over the world. Twitter operates all over the world. And and they have not shown the same eagerness to deplatform in other countries as they may have here where they're, where they're under a closer microscope. So there's this damage that Facebook in particular, I think, does all over the world that even if you constrain them in the U.S., they, that might not necessarily mean the, the sum total of human suffering that they're creating is reduced. So I get worried. But I, but I, like, I, I like your proposal, Emily. I like the proposal of it's, you know, they, they set up principles that we hold them to those principles and, and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, like, here's another idea, and this isn't my idea. Um, it comes from, like, Kate Starbird at the University of Washington. I think Ellen Goodman at Rutgers has talked about this, too, that you would have, like, a circuit breaker. So if you the, – the platforms know which accounts are the huge spreaders of disinformation. That's not a secret. We can see that. Kate Starbird has this list that she published before the election. So once you're a known spreader of disinformation, maybe there should be some kind of, like – break on how fast the content travels that comes from your account. Something in the algorithm that says, like, wait a second, we're going to check first to make sure this is not hate speech or disinformation before we promote it and amplify it with the algorithm, right? I think sometimes what gets lost, like the a principle I keep returning to is that the algorithm is not, there's no like perfect abstract algorithm that is like the law of the land. The algorithm is always making choices. It's always shaping and in some ways manipulating the content that we see before us. And so the idea that you would want to push the algorithm in certain instances to be wary of disinformation seems like fair enough to me. I feel like there are two big things, two different kinds of speech that we're trying to get a handle on here. One is the vast amount of misinformation that exists that uh, causes people to believe things that aren't true, that causes them to, you know, then that the, the big that causes the big lie to take hold in the way it did. And that is fundamentally runs through these big algorithms as it runs through Facebook, uh, which have this real power to multiply and speed up the, the dissemination of that. The second kind of information is the ability of bad actors to plan things and to organize together and to plan mischief, criminal conduct. And those are two different forms of speech that you want to monitor and control. And in fact, going trying to control the first sort, which is the, the big lie misinformation, may actually 
enable the people, the, ma- the bad actors to hide more, that they will retreat to things that are more hidden platforms and be able to, to stay out of sight of law enforcement. Is that a problem, Emily? Yeah, that's a great question. And this has happened, too, with, like, WhatsApp groups that, you know, Facebook, which owns WhatsApp, alas, for uh, monopolistic reasons, has limited the number of forwards you can have to a WhatsApp account as a way of trying to prevent that that more secret forwarding of disinformation or incitement. And so I think that's important to put, again, those kinds of, like, checks, internal checks in the system. What we know from the research about ISIS in particular and its spread online was that it actually was a good idea to have the, it's not like you're going to stop people from spreading their ideas entirely. And like, that's not, we don't want that to happen. But if you make it harder, if you push them into less mainstream venues, if people have to go seek it out, as opposed to having it like recommended to them on YouTube or through a Facebook group, that's better. It just ropes in fewer people who are like, maybe persuadable, but not out there looking for it. And so the problem you described, while I think it's like a real one and worth taking seriously, I don't think it means that we should not try to limit lies and disinformation online. I think that's actually like a mistake. And do we need a new way of thinking about um, lies and disinformation in, in the public square that helps people who aren't in this. Well, I guess I have two points. One, do we need a new way of thinking about it? Like the yelling fire in a crowded theater is a very helpful way of thinking about spreading disinformation and the kind of, and the, and the immediate negative effects of that. And so do we need to come up with that way of thinking about how this takes hold? And then the second thing is, as you think about the big lie, one of the reasons the big lie exists is that the market for the political market for behavior has gotten warped so that you can be a Josh Hawley or a Ted Cruz who only has to appeal to a pretty narrow audience. And that one of the problems we're trying to solve may be a political problem that's distinct from a speech problem. In other words, if you had a more healthy functioning system where lawmakers had to appeal to a broader audience, they would benefit less from narrow casting the fever swamps. Yeah, I mean, I think those things are related, right? Like the first idea where you create a new kind of speech norm and you try to um, convince people that incendiary disinformation is like truly harmful, that's like a longer term project. People talk about media literacy, education. Happily, young people are better at spotting disinformation than older people. So maybe some of this will come out in the wash as those as more people who are like truly Internet natives um, grow up. And and this may be a sort of temporary problem for those reasons. That's like a hopeful way of thinking about it. But the fact that there is reward, not punishment for the politicians and the leaders who are helping to spread the lie is militating against what I just said, right? The fact that like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz have such a big television platform for spreading their ideas and that that's adding to their stature in the party is not helpful. One thing I wanted to ask you guys about is the silence of President Trump since, well, really since January 6th, mostly, but especially since he left office. It is really different to have him 
out of the news environment. And right now it's a choice he's making. I mean, he could presumably call into a Fox show every single day if he felt like it. So I, yeah. I part of me wonders if his lawyers or Mitch McConnell, and I say this with zero reporting, but someone has said to him, like, you need to cool it until after the impeachment if you want the Republicans to stick with you on this vote, and whether this is just a temporary reprieve. And part of me wonders if there's something else going on that might be longer term, and and that even if Trump come, I mean, he of course he's going to come back, that the media is going to figure out how to take a break from him and cover him differently. Because a lot of this is about his ability to shape television coverage through social media, not the social media itself, especially if he's like off on parlor, come back in some form or some other more fringy platform as opposed to Twitter or Facebook. I don't know what the I don't know what his game what's going on in his world. It has been um, a, quite a noticeable shift to feel um, that every progression of time is not subject to the immediate swerves and explosions as a result of both his behavior and the whipsawing of the news cycle after whatever he's doing. Um, so I hope whatever it is continues. But it's clear that the market he created obviously still exists. One of the things I wonder about Parler and other places is whether they, you can go off and play in your own sandbox, but because negative partisanship is so much a part of politics today, and it's more a part of the Republican side, is it possible to own the libs if you're not getting, if the libs aren't around? So if you own the libs in a forest, does it make a sound? Um, and and part of the joy in the people who act out it's such a is not point. that they're making... That's a, No, it's such a great point. It's such a good point. It, 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 is it's not the, the beauty of what they're saying. In fact, much of the time... People will say, well, I know Donald Trump is not making any sense or he's, you know, this is crazy, but they really enjoy the fact that he makes um, liberals flap around. I keep going back to the Newt Gingrich line. He may not be a conservative, he said about Donald Trump, but he's the best anti-liberal I know. And so I don't know where this point is going other than to just sort of name something that I feel like I see. And also, by the way, the liberals need the same thing. All the people who kept quoting on Twitter things that were being said on Parler, you know, were demonstrating, it seems to me, the need to kind of keep sucking at that uh, gap in the teeth because they kind of enjoyed the crazy stuff that was being said because it gave them something to bounce off. Yeah, I mean, I find one of this is like one of the hardest challenges in journalism is like how much attention do you give ideas that are, might be like a tiny number of people, but they're exciting in some way. Have you guys noticed this in the last week or so? There's been a ton of coverage of Marjorie Taylor Greene, the QAnon supporting member of Congress and digging up of like old YouTube videos of hers. And like, it's bad. I mean, she said that, you know, Sandy Hook and the Parkland shootings were false flag operations. Like, it is not good. But like, how many people like, are we giving her outsized attention? And is that just like a really bad idea? I think we are giving her outsized attention. On the other hand, if the struggle of our day is between reality and fantasy, the fact that a person who engages in fantasy can get elected is is should be worrying and it would only be mildly worrying if it were an outlier but fantasy led to the 6th of, J of january i mean we are in the still in the smoldering wreckage of 
a lie creating actual violence. 140 Capitol Police are injured in one form or another as a result of complete detachment from reality. So she is a perhaps a guppy in um, this school of fish, but there are some huge fish still swimming around. You definitely should not take investment advice from podcast hosts, certainly not hosts of this podcast. We on the GabFest do not tend to follow the markets. We leave that in the hands of wiser people. And this week, we need to call on one of those wiser people because there is such a crazy story happening in the financial markets. And we needed someone to help us understand it. And that someone we've called is Felix Salmon. Felix, of course, is the chief financial correspondent at Axios. He's also the host of Slate Money. He is here to explain the craziness around GameStop and the implications of the Reddit investment rebellion that's happening. So Felix, can you start by just explaining in terms that even someone as dumb as me can understand what is happening now with GameStop? What what is it what is GameStop? What is happening to it? Who's doing it? Why is it happening now? I'll try and keep this simple without trying to explain short selling because you don't really need to understand that. The main thing you need to know is that GameStop is a beleaguered shopping mall retailer. It sells like two games for five bucks. It has been losing money for a while now. It has been shrinking. It has lots of debt. And it's a publicly listed company, so it has shares out on the open market. And a bunch of hedge funds looked at this and said, well, this company is going to zero. It has way too much debt. It has no future. And if it goes to zero, then the shares will wind up being worthless or at least worth a lot less than they were. And so they decided to put on a bet that the shares were going to go down in value. And thus began this battle royale between the hedge fund managers on the one hand and the army of Redditors on the other who formed on a subreddit called Wall Street Bets and then started memeing their way across the internet, TikTok and Twitter and YouTube and even Elon Musk's Twitter account, basically going out and saying, listen, all of these guys are making these bets that the stock is going down. If we just buy this stock in bulk and if we buy it using leverage and we put all of our stimulus checks into buying call options on GameStop stock, what that will do is it will drive the price higher, the hedge funds will lose billions of dollars, and we will make all of those billions of dollars. It's a simple zero-sum game. If the stock goes up, then the Reddit crew makes money and the hedge funds lose money. And if the stock goes down, then the hedge funds make money and the Reddit crew lose money. And so the battle was joined and the Redditors started buying and it started going up and it started going up and it started going up. And every time anyone thought it couldn't possibly go up any further, it went further and as of Wednesday night, it is worth, I don't know, $25 billion or more. It's just been a crazy run in the markets. And this means that the hedge funds that bet against the company and the stock have lost lots of money. And there's a lot of schadenfreude going on. 
So do we have to worry about this? I mean, I read a little around whether they're breaking any laws or not. Seems like probably it's not securities fraud, which, you know, you have to like deliberately try to pump up a stock in order to fool people. And that doesn't really seem to be what's going on. At least that's my reading of especially Matt Levine. Uh, excellent. <laughs> read Matt Levine, who does not give legal advice. No, I think you're right. Um if it's out, this is like, there's this classic Trumpian thing of like, if I incite an insurrection out in the open, then it can't be illegal. But like, in the case of market manipulation, it really does work like that. If you do something out in the open, and you're not lying, you're all just saying, hey, let's go out and buy this stock. There's nothing illegal about doing that, as far as I can tell. So th what that leaves me with is this feeling of like, okay, so this sucked for this hedge fund. And I guess if this was going to keep going on and on with a lot of companies and the idea of inflating the stock price of relatively valueless companies seems just like kind of weird and not necessarily what we want from the stock market. But beyond that, like unless I'm worried that this is like going to mess with the market in some way that, you know, scrambles values and hurts lots of ordinary like pension fund and other investors, it just seems like kind of funny mischief making am i it is funny mis mischief making i think you pretty much have your finger on it there i don't see a lot of broad negative consequences of this although there is there is no shortage of concern trolling on cnbc right now there is no shortage of like wall street veterans going on the television and s sucking their teeth and telling the redditors that it's all going to end in tears and they're like i'm just looking out for you you're going to lose your money all of your money if you carry on behaving like this and the redditors are like laughing and not taking anything seriously and one of the things that really annoys the old school financial professionals is that they've basically lost this game against a team of people who aren't taking it seriously. And there's nothing which feels worse than losing a game against someone who isn't taking the game seriously. And these people are clearly not taking the game seriously. They're in it for the lulls, they're in it for the memes, and they're making money. And that just irks a bunch of financial pros and the CNBC types who are trying to find reasons to hate this. But I think you're right, there aren't that many reasons to hate this. So Felix, <clears throat> how are they making money? So if I'm buying a stock and driving up the stock price, at some point to make money, don't I have to sell at some point? And then if they all decide to sell, won't we head to the bottom pretty fast? So that's true. Um, right now, a lot <laughs> like of the games are- Like any good pyramid scheme. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so a bunch of people have taken profits. Um, one thing that is worth noting is that on Wednesday, total volume in GameStop stock, and remember, this is a tiny company, was $31 billion. $31 billion of GameStop stock was sold. So it's not like no one is selling. A lot of people are selling in unprecedented volumes. There's total volume of Apple stock on a day that Apple announced its quarterly earnings was $19 billion, to put that in context. So if you want to sell, you can sell. There is a lot of liquidity here. And sure, in principle, if everyone all sold at the same time, then it would go down. But a lot of people have been selling. The stock is extremely volatile. It can go up and down from like $150 to $300 in one day. It's probably worth, on a fundamental basis, maybe like three 
but no one cares. Right now, it's a little bit like Bitcoin, right? It's something which is worth whatever someone else is willing to pay for it. Does that then make this a transfer of wealth between one Redditor to the other? It's a transfer of wealth, really, from a bunch of hedge fund managers to a bunch of Redditors. And the hedge fund managers have lots of money and don't need it all, and the Redditors are largely much less rich, and they're going around saying, oh my god, now I can pay for surgery for my dog, or something like that. And and it's life-changing for these people, and that's awesome. The, so Felix, I've listened to you on Slate Money talk about Robin Hood and the rise of this uh, sort of plebeian investor economy that they're all all of us now can you know buy options and buy fractional stocks and have not have pay any fees and and it's it's shaken things up i wonder the thing that troubles me about what's happening with with gamestop is not that the redditors are fleecing the hedge funders which i'm all for but that this is just another example of the huge overinvestment in American life in the finance economy. There's already too many people who work in finance. There's already so much intellectual energy, so much human capital deployed in finance. And now we have even more people, just regular citizens, doing this in their spare time when they could be doing almost anything else which they would could be, be more productive poetry, to society. David. Yeah. Well, they could. I mean, yeah, you I don't know if you're speaking ironically, but I do kind of feel that way that it is that that look, I'm I I'm for gambling. I'm for people going to Vegas. I'm for people playing around with their money if they can afford it. But it just feels like the finance economy is just too big a part of the of American life. And we shouldn't celebrate it becoming an even bigger part of people's everyday uh, hobbies. I think you're right. It's it's not necessarily something to celebrate and there are dangers and the concern trolls are not wrong when they say that it's probably all going to end in tears at some point these people are not well diversified um this is a strategy that works until it doesn't all of that i just feel like in the middle of a pandemic there are much bigger things to worry about right this is a game that people play on their phones when they're stuck at home and bored. This is what Matt Levine calls the boredom markets hypothesis, and it's not wrong. That The thing driving all of this is not some grand narrative of financialization of the American economy so much as it's a bunch of teens with phones and nothing better to do. And I guess the other thing is that, you know, for years we've been hearing about these fa fancy financial products that Wall Street designs that have zero value in terms of like actually creating things in the world that make people's lives better. And this isn't exactly the same. It's not like some, you know, new securities derivative, but it's essentially creating value from the short bet of a hedge fund. <laughs> and I just can't help but admire that a little bit. Like it's some combination of creativity and chutzpah and collective action that has a certain appeal. So to be clear, most of the activity here is going on in the options market. And that's where the real gains and losses are the options market is a zero-sum game the total amount of losses is always exactly equal to the total amount of gains so you're not really creating that much value and while it is certainly true that the market value of GameStop is high and that's gone up and that's value that's been created it's not clear what GameStop can do with that it's hard for them to like monetize it or make much use of it so 
that's fine as far as it goes. It just doesn't go very far. But the real value is just in the fact that you're transferring money from a place where the marginal utility of an extra dollar is low, like, you know, in that pocket of Gabe Plotkin, who just spent $44 million buying a pair of houses in Miami Beach, and you're moving that dollar to a place where the marginal utility of money is high in the you know pocket of someone for whom a $600 stimulus check is real money. And so you're increasing the value of money by doing that, you know, I hate to say it, Robin Hood thing of taking from the rich and giving to the poor. Felix, was that the original reason behind this? Or was it just to screw with the hedge fund guys who they felt were being sort of vulturistic by making bets about the death of a company? What's interesting about Wall Street bets is that it is a really quite positive and upbeat subreddit. It's not a bunch of mean, cackling meme lords who are trying, you know, seeking out short sellers to crush. Um, they're basically just saying, hey, this is a rocket ship. Let's ride this to Mars. Let's ride it to the moon. And they're having fun with it. It is much more joyous than it is um, aggressive, I would say. On Wednesday, Felix, the broader stock market had a huge decline, even as GameStop was going up into the stratosphere. Is there any connection between what's happening in the broader financial markets, stock market, and what's happening with GameStop? Are they just two different universes, can't look at them together at all. Everything is connected, and it's definitely true that the volatility of the market as a whole has gone up during these first crazy couple of weeks of 2021. And there does seem to be a little bit of contagion in that way. If a bunch of big professional institutional investors are losing money on those shorts, then they need to sell stocks somewhere else to make up that money to make their margin calls and so people are hypothesizing that perhaps part of the reason that the market broadly fell was because they would sell their you know ibm and general electric stock in order to make up for the margin calls on their losses on amc and gamestop i don't know if i entirely believe that there seems to be a little bit of like volatility contagion from them to the rest of the market but i don't think it's enough to really concern yourself with. Felix Salmon of Axios is the host of Slate Money, which I'm sure will cover this in We in will be covering it on Saturday on morning. Saturday. Tune in. Thank you, Felix. Thanks, David. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you've lost all your GameStop money, you're reduced to drinking the cheapest six-pack that you can find. What will you be chattering about on your, on your decaying porch, Emily. Okay, so I have a happy chatter and then a downer of a chatter. So my happy chatter is I read another book. It was so good. It was called A Children's Bible by Lydia Millet. And it's sort of a fable in some ways. It's kind of about um, our relationship with our planet. But it's also just about a bunch of interesting teenagers in a weird situation. It's kind of short. I totally recommend it. Um, it's called, again, A Children's Bible by Lydia Millet. Okay, so that was my happy chatter. My bitter chatter this week, I'm going to break my own rule. So I think it's really important, <laughs> as other folks like David Leonhardt at the Times have pointed out, to think of vaccines to, as to be celebrated and not to get all wrapped up in the things going wrong. 
However, oh my God, Philadelphia, my hometown. Oh my God. Oh, I'm so <laughs> mad at these people. Philadelphia signed a vaccine distribution contract with a startup called Philly Fighting COVID, a self-described group of college kids. These people are like getting my jerk award of the century. It's, it's the fire festival of- for vaccines. Yes. They, like, gave out the vaccine to their friends. Like, meanwhile, nobody, as far as I know in Philadelphia, who's over 75, um, has gotten a vaccine. My parents, sure, cannot get a vaccine. And they were just, like, giving them out totally irresponsibly. They went to get for-profit status without telling the city. It's just, like, it's just awful. Just don't be these people. Like, don't scam off of the vaccine, which, like, we really need to end this stupid pandemic. Just, like, don't. John, but the good, the, the good vaccine story is in Oregon. Um, health workers were stranded in the snow, and rather than let the, um, rather than let the, the the vaccine go bad, they started finding people and and giving them the vaccine. That is so much so of that story. Let's tell that story. Yeah. So that's I like that. That's a good much story. Much better. You're right. Um, What's your chatter, John? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> My chatter is one that, David, you will join in, which is that people must set aside time to watch on Hulu in and of itself. Um, oh, yeah. Which is, I mean, David, how would you describe what it is in order not to totally screw it up? Because um, it, it's, if you say it's about magic, it's about so much more than that. It's about humanity and identity and... It's a one-man show by um, Derek Delgadio, and it was I we saw it in New York live. I've seen the movie, which is incredibly powerful, so powerful that I get emotional watching just the um, trailer. Um, but David, um, it's incredible. I, I don't. I've been trying to find someone to talk to about this and some way to talk about it. And actually, I the funny one funny thing, listeners, is there is a brief. And Dickerson cameo. I guess you guys were at a performance that was filmed, and there's there was Anne flashed across the across the screen. I texted her, and I was like, "That is that you?" And oh my like, god, that's so <laughs> awesome! I love that. I, I'm maybe you look were in it that. too, John. I didn't see you. The uh, I have I don't I don't know how to describe it. I yes, because when you start to say magic, also there's a whole set of people whose faces fall when you start to say that, and it's not that, right. and it's it's incredible and weird and. I would love to to have an evening discussing it with really smart people because I just don't know what to make of it and yet have been thinking about it for days. And when she got that text from you, David, it launched us um, into a, a huge discussion again. We basically have these periodic discussions about it. Um, and I can't... Did she ever get back to oh, you? She because did. She, she called was dying me. to she talk to you about it. She called me and I didn't yeah. call her back because I was... She called me. Oh. When I was in the middle. Well, then you missed your chance for an excellent well, discussion. That I was, was in the middle dumb. of something. I was in the middle of something. But it's, I mean, I think what's, I also would just advise people who watch it. It's like, please be sure to stay for the, it's only 90 minutes, but the last half, it really, like the last half hour is just 12 kicks in the head. Yeah. You've got, you got to get I'm there. I'm so excited for this. I saved it for the weekend once you guys started talking about it. We um we went and saw it together, and then Anne went and saw it again. Um, because and I was supposed to go with her, but um we couldn't we couldn't get enough tickets. So um so I think that might have been the show that she went to, um, with our daughter um instead of the one that we went to with with our son. But um, yeah, I mean it's um, it's it's really I envy you, Emily, for your 
chance my to ignorance. see it with fresh, fresh eyes. Uh, it's called In and of Itself on Hulu. My chatter. I have uh, two, two quickie, cheerful chatters. Very quick, both of them. One is I am re-listening to David Blight's Yale class, The Civil War and Reconstruction, which is available as a podcast. You have to kind of poke around for it. One of the our listeners gave me the link. Thank you, listener. Um, we'll I'd post the to, link in that case. Yeah, well, we can post the link. I have uh, I listened to it, you know, probably ten years ago. It's absolutely magnificent. You've heard David perhaps on our podcast. He's just an incredible historian and, and met, amazing talker. But this this course is just it's the grandest uh, story of America and just like where a terrible terrible moment and how it happened. And it's just he does it so brilliantly and so compellingly. It's my I look forward to like, oh, I'm have my morning walk. So I get to listen to two David Blight lectures this morning. Uh, so please check it out. The other quick chatter is I want to uh, recommend a project that Marketplace did. Marketplace, the uh, public radio show, asked a Minneapolis rapper named Dessa, who's a like a friend of mine as well, by coincidence, to write a song about Janet Yellen, the new secretary of the treasury. And they asked Dessa, I think, because Dessa had been on the Hamilton mixtape, and they were like, Hamilton, you know, there was this great musical about the Treasury Secretary once, and now we have this new Treasury Secretary. Wouldn't it be good to have a song about the new Treasury Secretary? And Dessa wrote just such a fun, great song, and I think we're going to play a little sample from that now. Who's yelling now? Who's yelling? Who's yelling now? Doves on the left, hawks on the right, cross talk in the flock, trying to fight mid flight. But here comes yelling with that inside voice. Never mind the mild manner, policies make noise. She's five foot nothing, but hands to God. She could pop a collar, she could rock a power bob. Bay Ridge represent, Brooklyn's in the cabinet. Damn, Janet, go and get it. Fifth and I'm for president. She knows the kind of stimulus it takes to pass. I heard block. she called the house in Christ. She's qualified. It only took a couple centuries. The first female secretary of the treasury. It is lots of love for that song. It is so great. It is so great. It's so funny. Uh, listeners, you continue to send us great listener chatters. You tweet them to us at, at @slategabfest. So many good ones, and we've decided to do something new because we are so glad of your suggestions. We're now going to ask you to do the chatter yourself. So we are trying something new this week. Uh, I picked out a listener chatter from Gael Phobes, and Gael Phobes, take it away. Hi, Emily, David, and John. This is Gael. I'm a student up at Syracuse University, and my listener chatter for this week is a wonderful tweet thread from Joaquin Campa, and he compiled a whole bunch of photos of animals interrupting wildlife photographers who are, who are trying to do their job. And my favorite photo is number seven, which is a cheetah cub who is resting on a photographer's shoulders. Thanks so much for uh, taking this chatter. I love this. This is the best idea yeah. ever, whoever's idea this was. I think it's Bridget's idea. Bridget, good, Bridget, good idea, Bridget. Gold star. Add this to your collection. That's our show for today. The Gaffest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, at Slate Gaffest, and tweet chatter to us there. And perhaps you will end up doing your chatter, if you want to, on the show. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? If you are John Dickerson, 
you are undoubtedly in the midst of an organizational project or you are sharpening your pencils, which you have bought for $150 per pencil somewhere. No, they're not expensive. Or you have a a cloth-bound notebook that was, you know, cloth that was gathered from miners miners in the uh, original Comstock load in 1849 because their their (laughs) cloth makes the best binding for any possible notebook. But I'm making fun of you, John, but you are a man of process. And we were asked this week about your process by listener Mark. Hi, Emily, John, and David. This is Mark Rotenstrike from New York City. Last week, John mentioned that he's transitioning from Evernote to OneNote, and I'm really curious to know why. I like Evernote a lot and am trying to use it more because I'm forever struggling to keep track of everything. So now, having heard John say that, I'm wondering what he knows that I don't. Also, I'm curious to know what apps and tools the three of you use to keep track of information and to organize your work and personal lives. So thanks for sharing that information, and thanks also for the great weekly shows. I think the biggest, most important um, thing I ever learned was reading um, David Allen's Getting Things Done, and it was basically to have some structure for capturing ideas. So it seems to me that the basic, most important organizational thing is capturing and follow through because you need to have a place you can capture things. So when you have a thought, um, you, it doesn't go away because a, you lose the thought and then B you, you over time accrue this feeling like, ah, my, my life is a sieve and, um, I'm just not on top of anything. If at least you have a, a set of tricks for capturing that diminishes that idea and then you have to follow through, which is to say when you capture it, it can't just like stay in a notebook. You have to actually do something with it. You don't have to do it immediately necessarily. One of the things I'd spent some time over the break do, um, doing was going back through as I switched from Evernote to OneNote. And I just, the quick answer to that is it's just far more, it has the functionality I need. You can highlight on pages much, much, much better. You can move stuff around more easily. Organizational is just grooves much more with the way I do things. Um, So then those are my basic things. What I really need, though, from you two guys or anyone else is a better way for capturing information from like newsletters, reading papers. I feel like I don't have the beauty of what used to be when you got one newspaper, which is you felt at the end of the day, even if you just leafed through the pages, like you had some sense of the whole world um, and everything drives us to such narrowness. I sometimes like feel like I could miss entire huge stories that are, you know, in the business section and not just in, in my narrow feed. Can I ask a OneNote question before we tackle that one? So my question mm-hmm. about OneNote, is it easy to cut and paste? I abandoned Evernote because I found that it was laborious to cut and paste stories online and like photos and charts didn't move easily and it just irritated me. Yeah, the, the 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 editing function in Evernote is a mess. They also upgraded Evernote and took away all the functions I liked the most. Um, the the um, it's it's pretty easy. The Web Clipper from Evernote is pretty good. So basically, if you're reading an article and you want to send it to Evernote, you just hit one button. Um, oh, that does sound good. Yeah, it also has nice syncing with Instapaper if people use that, where you. Um, when you read something in Instapaper and you highlight it, you can set up a rule that basically dumps all of your highlights into Evernote. Um, and then you can merge those more easily. OneNote's, one of OneNote's limitations is you can't merge um, 
you can't merge as easily. But I I find that for me, color and uh, is and emojis of all things are really useful in quickly looking at a f- page that has lots going on and kind of focusing on what I need that's important. And the editing on OneNote pages is so much better. I've just written two scripts in the last couple of weeks, which is just like a story for print, but I don't know, it's somehow different. But anyway, where you have, you know, a massive, massive transcript and you're trying to take out the bits you want to use in your in your writing. And it just worked so beautifully. Um, and so uh, I so I like, yeah, I like the editor on um, OneNote better. And it's more it's more like if you had it on physical pieces of paper in front of you. David, do you have an answer to John's question about being comprehensive, at least in some way, about the world? No, I don't. I think you guys are both writers, and I'm not really a writer anymore. And so the way I, I'm, I, I'm a project manager. That's what being a CEO is a lot of the time. And so I work in project management software, which in my case right now is Airtable and Dropbox. I don't even know what that is. And Google Docs. Airtable is a it's a software that you use to manage a project to keep on top of it. And so that's what my the brilliant project manager at CityCast has has put us on, and it's really useful. But I no, I don't, I don't, um, I don't have that same need to store every bit of information around a particular story or particular thing that you guys do. So I, I, I I outsource my memory to Google docs and Google and Gmail mostly. Um, but I don't, I don't have that same need, so I don't use it. Well, but do you survey the world in some way or no? No, I don't. Yeah, I don't either. I let myself off the hook of surveying the world. I kind of rely on the bits that are going to interest me or are really important to come float my way, like from my family or (laughs) something. I don't even, yeah. And I I sort of also just let myself off the hook of thinking that I have to know something about a lot of headlines. It's actually like, I think... It's, it's a relief to decide that you don't actually need to know what's going on and that someone can be talking about some big news story and you can just be like, what's that? And then you can sound like an idiot, but then they'll tell you and that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> My, um, the other thing I've learned, which is, I don't know if this is, I've always been this way or I've learned it or this is a result of age. But I'm, I've, I often feel like the what's inside the computer screen is is not really under my control. So if I'm writing a piece like in a single day and I have a deadline, it's all kind of contained in the piece, you know. It's all just kind of right there on one screen and that's pretty easy. Or if you're making a pretty simple argument. But when it when the argument's more complex or you've interviewed lots and lots of different people um, or God forbid, it's a book, I feel like there's lots that's kind of lost inside the swimming screen and I physically need to have, you guys may remember the huge roller paper I had on which I used to write outlines, but basically if I could build a perfect office, one wall would be basically like a huge sheet of paper and one wall would be a bulletin board on which to peg things because I need to have the serial killer hunter's wall on which you like draw have red strings and i need to outline some ideas on a piece of paper without constraints in order to figure out how they connect in fact i will now hold up sorry slate sorry those of you are listening but i mean this is this is me trying to work out the um 
a tricky part of the recent um, piece I was working on. And and it worked. Um, but it didn't work going up and down. It's kind of a bunch of, it's basically a bunch of words and circles and squares on a, on a huge piece of um, art paper. You know what's funny uh, is that both the serial killer hunter and the serial killer have the same methodology. Serial killers also have those huge bulletin boards and like planning out. And then the serial killer hunter does too. It seems like maybe they should work together and there could be one product <laughs> that both of them could use. Huh. I don't know how well that would end for the serial killers, but I guess maybe that would be another advantage. I totally know what you mean, John, about I actually don't have a bulletin board, but I feel like when you're with a big project, being able to... That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash plus to become a member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 